This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Hey, dear listeners, welcome to episode number five of the Tupperware Party, Film Geek Radio's weekly podcast devoted to discussion and analysis of the HBO TV series, The Leftovers. I'm your host, Andrew Johnson, and I'm here with my regular co-host, Charlie Nash. How are you doing, Charlie? I'm okay, Andrew, I guess. Just okay? Uh, I mean, you know, I think I just got stoned to death. (laughs) That would really ruin a weekend. Yeah, well, basically, yeah. It, it's put a damper on things. What have you brought uh, to eat today at the Tupperware party and your leftovers? What do you have? Uh, rocks, because they were thrown into my face. <laughs> I brought some white shirts. Oh. Yeah. We didn't bring very edible uh, things to the table this week, did we? <laughs> well, when you're desperate, you'll eat pretty much anything. <laughs> I really miss our bagels, Andrew. <laughs> Oh, I don't know if I'd go that far. <laughs> As always, you can email the Tupperware Party at leftovers at filmgeekradio.com, and you can access all of our episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes or Stitcher. If you like the show, please leave us a review. That really helps us out a lot. And if you leave us a good review, we'll make you an honorary member of the uh, show. We also have a voicemail line at 336-793-2509, so you can call and leave us some feedback there. Again, that's 336-793-2509. Before we get started with today's episode, uh, we have a new iTunes review from Tony0010. She writes in and says, Always insightful, intelligent, and entertaining. I listen to them on their True Detective cast, Detect This, and on Twitter. I love hearing what they have to say. Thanks, Tony. Yes, thank you so much. Yes, Tony's been a, a longtime fan, and she did actually leave us another voicemail this week that uh, we're going to get to later on in the show. Oh, awesome. But, uh, Tony, we really appreciate all of your support, and we are pleased to bring you on as an honorary member of the Tupperware Party team, is our expert geologist. Want to know all about the rocks the locals are throwing at each oh, other? God. Just call Tony. <laughs> She'll tell you everything you need to know. Tony, I'm sorry that we've given you such, <laughs> such a brute. <laughs> that's the most brutal thing we could give to her <laughs> this week. Oh <laughs> uh, Well, today we're going to be discussing episode five of season one of The Leftovers. The episode is titled Gladys. It was written by Damon Lindelof and Tom Parada and directed by Mimi Leader. Uh, who, by the way, Mimi Leader, she's a film director. She's directed a bunch of movies, including uh, Deep Impact and The Peacemaker with George Clooney and Nicole Kidman and uh, Pay It Forward. Oh, my God. Pay It Forward. <laughs> hey, hey, pay, pay It Forward's not a bad movie. It has its okay. heart in the right place. But my God, that <laughs> ending. Uh. <laughs> well, Charlie, why don't you go ahead and remind our listeners what happened on this episode of The Leftovers? Uh, this is the official synopsis from HBOGo.com. Laurie's resolve is put to the test in the wake of a brutal hate crime. After his latest initiatives to maintain peace in Mapleton fall short, Kevin turns down an outside offer to rid the town of its problems. Matt brings his pulpit to the street. Meg takes on a new role. All right, here's a clip. It's Meg, right? You still talk? Yes. Where's Lori? I don't know. 
Is she okay? I don't know. I'm the only person that gives a shit about you people, and you won't even tell me where my wife is? She's not your wife anymore. All right, Charlie, let's start off just by giving some some general thoughts on the episode. What did you think of Gladys? Good episode or bad episode? Oh my God, Andrew, I don't even know where to start. You say that like it's a bad thing. Uh, well, here's what I will say. The episode did exactly what it set out to do and affected me in the way that it aimed to affect me. And yet I feel like it's very manipulative and exploitative at the same time because... Let's just say, Andrew, as people who listen to the show probably watched, and if you haven't, then sorry, but... Yeah, stop listening and go watch the episode, because we are going to spoil things. Okay, so let me just say that this is the most... It it starts with the most probably depressing opening, cold open, I have ever seen in a show. Ever. I don't know if I'd go that far. Okay, well, <laughs> let me just say that, okay, so the first shot is about, is like basically them standing outside and this guy yelling uh, at the members of the Guilty Remnant, fuck you, you fucking cunts. And then on top of that, an old man falls over with a bag of groceries begging for help and they walk around him. And then we witness this long, extended, gruesome murder of Gladys, the title character. And we basically are shown in graphic close-ups as, uh, you know, as, as she gets rocks thrown into her face with horrible sound effects of the bones breaking and the cartilage. And, uh, oh my god, Andrew, I felt like I was being, like, it was a very powerful scene, and yet I feel like we don't know who Gladys is as a character enough for it to warrant this uh, the, this this brutal punishment, because we we don't really know who she is, which makes it feel really cheap and manipulative to me because basically Gladys's death, this gruesome murder that we're forced to endure, is basically setting in motion everything else in the episode, but we don't even really know who Gladys is as a character, so to have her tragic death just impact everybody in the episode makes it feel more like a manipulative plot device than really a tragedy, if that makes any sense. Sure, I mean, but but okay, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit, and, and we'll, we'll discuss it a little bit more in a second, but what did you think of the rest of the episode, aside from the opening scene, which, yes is pretty gruesome and shocking. Well, that's my... The, the opening scene basically affected everyone in the episode because that's my point, is it, it was a chain reaction to getting everyone to do in this episode what they did, which I think that the drama was better this week in comparison to last week, although there were still p- plenty of clunky moments. But at the same time, it's drama that's created by something so manipulative and so gruesome that I didn't feel was justifiably gruesome that it really curdled how how I thought about the rest of the episode, if that makes any sense. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's it's just so it's it's really ballsy to start an episode off like that. But we're in we're only on the fifth episode of season one. Like, this isn't Breaking Bad or anything. And and I know that's like extremely high praise, but we don't know who this person is. So it just made it feel to me like the showrunners were kind of using it as cheap drama. As opposed to if we if we got to learn who Gladys was and we saw her go through character development or anything or, you know, it would have felt more justified to me. But to just use her as this prop to set these things in motion kind of upset me. Well, uh, I, overall, I I liked the episode. Um, the, the Leftovers has been kind of a hit and miss show, as I'm sure you'll agree, Charlie. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wouldn't say this episode blew me away. 
But in terms of episodes where some things work and some things don't, I definitely think that more worked in this episode than did not work. And I actually really, really liked the opening scene. And I thought that it was very effective, as you said, at just hooking the viewer right in. And and, and I immediately wanted to know, okay, what is going to happen now? Yeah. I I was not expecting that to happen. And even when they were stoning her, I was expecting them to kind of back off and for her to be, you know, left for dead or almost dead. I didn't expect for them to actually kill her. And I think that it that overall it, it was effective. The thing that bothered me about this episode is, again, everything with Kevin, which just really, yes. really irritated me. And uh, we'll, we'll get to that more in a second. But let's talk some more about this, this uh, opening scene and how it affects things. I think it works because you're right. Gladys really isn't much of a character. We didn't even know her name until this episode. But she has popped up probably more frequently than any of the other members of the Guilty Remnant that aren't our primary cast. Uh, You know, whenever there's a person getting abused or getting stuff thrown on them it's usually or getting yelled at it's usually gladys and so that kind of made me feel really bad like even worse is the fact that great not only is someone from the guilty remnant getting killed it's the person that is that already we've seen gone through just so much little small uh, abuses. Yeah, and she that, just can't uh, catch a break. <laughs> and that's kind of another reason why it didn't work for me. Is she didn't feel so much like a character, so much as, hey, we need normal people to be mean to a member of the guilty remnant. Let's use Gladys. Like it almost feels like Kenny on South Park, like to that effect. And now, like, and, and remember we were joking about the red slushy and like, oh, it's symbolic, Andrew. Well, yeah, uh, I now feel like the worst human being in the world for ever <laughs> saying that. And part of me, well, after I watched that was like, I deserve this. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, was it an effective scene? Absolutely. But I just don't think that it's justified in doing that. Well, here, here's why I liked it, Charlie, because it gave this episode a clear focus. And that's something that we've complained about in the past about how yes. we're, we're, we're trying to figure out, okay, what is the show doing? What is the show's goal? I still don't know what the show as a whole is doing, but like episode three, this is an episode in which there was a main event, a main conflict that had to be dealt with. In episode three, it was the priest losing his church. Here, it's how, how are we going to react after the murder of this woman? And I liked that that provided a focal point for everything else. Didn't, you know, everything else didn't always work, but it, it, it at least felt like there was a direction that it was all heading in. And I appreciated that. And that's why I think that overall it worked. Yeah, but it didn't so much feel like a lot of... I guess another thing that rang really sour for me is that a lot of these characters don't really care that Gladys is dead. I mean, they do, but it's more about how... How are we going to move on from this and not how can we mourn her? Which I get is part of what the Guilty Remnant, you know, the Guilty Remnant is dead already, as we basically hear. They're basically dead already. But it just felt like, okay, this will get things moving again, as opposed to, oh, how horrible that a 
you know, person has died type of a thing. You know, I don't exactly know what we were being punished for. It felt out of like a Michael Hanukkah movie, but usually Michael Hanukkah lets me know what I'm being punished for. And here to just start off with that, I agree with you that it got things set in uh, a certain direction and then it, you know, had a, it helps the episode gain a central focus and it definitely gripped me and made me want to watch the rest of the episode to see how everything was going to play out after that. That scene that just felt so explo exploitative to me that I don't know if it can justify. Just the fact that, you know, it just felt like she was, as I said, a prop, not someone that we knew and connected to. It's not someone on Game of Thrones even where we get to know them and then they tragically die. Uh, it was just a victim who was victimized throughout the first four episodes and then she's brutally murdered in this episode to prove a point and I don't really know what that point is and... I don't know. It, it it and just the rest of the episode is just so miserable on top of that, Andrew. Everyone is being so horrible to one another. The members of the guilty remnant are just as mean-spirited in some cases as the townspeople, and it's just a really like I know we've said that the show is bleak, but this set like a whole new low for how bleak the show can get. <laughs> this show is just really tough to sit through, Andrew. And okay. I, I I was gripped by the opening scene and I wanted to watch it, but it was really unpleasant. Okay. Well, let's explore something else related to that opening scene. Yeah. Who do you think did it? Well, it almost seems like the priest could have done it because he. it seemed like the amount of people that went to, excuse me, the compound, those looked like the same amount of people that were throwing stones at her, not to mention the priest has motive because they stole the church from him, but I don't want it to be him, and I don't think that would make much sense. And also, I guess that's another thing about it, is that I don't really know who did it because I don't know who these people are, like, well, at all. <laughs> here's my theory, and someone else act in the episode actually voiced this opinion. I think it was the Guilty Remnant. I think it was uh, Ann Dowd and maybe a few of the other uh, people in the activist group, as we're calling it. Because the opening scene is actually of Gladys and Patty in her office, just kind of sharing a look about, like, something's going to go down. Yeah. And we don't know what it is. So I'm wondering if maybe Gladys kind of volunteered to be a scapegoat and then didn't realize how far it was going to go, or if maybe uh, it was some sort of test and the fact that she ended up speaking after they uh, were beating her and, and stoning her and she ended up begging for help. Maybe that's why ultimately they decided to kill her because she failed the test. But my initial thought was, okay, it, it could actually just be members of the Guilty Remnant. I think that's definitely a possibility because now that I think about it, you're right. Doesn't Gladys nod to Ann Dowd too? Yes, yeah. and we don't know what's going on, but... Yeah, uh, but... If it is the Guilty Remnant, that would be interesting, but it's just, it's kind of the problem I'm having with this show, Andrew. It's so bleak to the point where it just makes me want to die. I mean, like, it's just so depressing, and everyone is a horrible human being, and yet at the same time, we don't know who these people are, and... It just little things, like, and, and once again, even the stuff with Jill, like, you know, we we cut to the high school where they're, like, using some sort of chemistry set, and she's putting her hand over the fire, and one of her friends says, is that seriously the best you can do? And I was just like, God, not every teenager, not everyone in this show has to be a nihilistic, like, I don't know, you know what I mean? It was just shoving me into the face of misery at all times, and I don't know why. I don't know where this show is going enough for me to 
Like, am I am I bored? No, not really. But at the same time, I feel like I don't know what the themes are of this show. And it's frustrating for me because I, I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And the fact that it's, you know, giving me a lot of things to think about makes me glad that I'm watching it at times. But at other times, I just I don't know if it's just nihilism. It feels like a, nihil- a very nihilistic, angry series that might be all about there's nothing there. Like, basically, uh, it just feels like this town destroying itself over nothing, which may be the point, but that's not exactly e- easy television to endure. Do you know what I mean? Or am I being a little too, I don't know. No, no, I, I mean, I can totally see that. It's definitely a bleak and, and brutal show, and I agree that I, as a whole, I still don't know why it all matters and where it's going. Yeah. So, so I can definitely see that frustration. But getting back to everything with the guilty remnant, before we move on to the stuff with Jill and Kevin, which I think is where the episode is really lacking. Yes. We we do learn a little bit more about the guilty remnant in this episode and what their overall philosophy is. And basically it's not to feel is is how one character puts it. Like they just the goal is not to feel. And then the Reverend shows up at the very end and is kind of challenging them like, yes, we're still here. We still feel lost. We still feel pain. And that's okay. So there's this conflict set up between feeling and and not feeling. And I do think that that is interesting. It, it does kind of make sense now why the Guilty Remnant would be stealing people's photographs and not helping each other up when they fall down. That was a particularly douchey thing that Gladys yeah. did. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it's starting to make sense. If the whole idea is just to not feel, maybe to stop caring about your fellow man so that the loss no longer affects you, that's certainly interesting because we've seen that explored before on an individual level as in like oh something traumatic happened to me so i'm just gonna stop feeling i'm gonna shut it all out Mm -hmm. but i'm not sure if we've ever seen that explored as like a group philosophy and i'm not sure it makes as much sense in a group philosophy because if you don't care then why are you a group wouldn't that just like well well, maybe that's why if the guilty remnant did stone gladys maybe that philosophy is behind it maybe they really don't care about yeah i don't know i have no idea then why does ann dowd bring Lori to you know the restaurant if the goal is not to feel if the goal is not to feel why does she care so much that Lori might leave because it seems like they're doing fine without her so well the goal surely sure the goal is not to feel but the goal is also to stay committed and keep growing their numbers and Lori has a panic attack and starts showing doubts that maybe she's not sure about this whole guilty remnant stuff. And, uh, you know, Patty's got to step in and be like, hey, Gladys had doubts too. And I brought her here and we did this same thing. And you got to show commitment. How long has it been since you spoke with Lori? About seven months. Eight, right. Well, Lori... You are overdue for a day off. No, no. You can talk. Just for today. Say anything you want to. Hey, I'm doing it too. Right? You ready? She's going to have French toast, scrambled eggs, order of bacon, large orange juice, coffee. 
You're going to have coffee. Coffee. You got it. And I thought it was interesting that Lori didn't speak. Yeah. Even though she was allowed. she's And, and again, that makes me wonder, like, okay, what other sorts of games has Patty and, and have the members of the Guilty Remnant? What, what sort of mind games do they play on their members? Because it's, it's almost like Lori is thinking, is this a test? Yeah. Well, that's what I was thinking, too. Yeah. Right. Like, she says I can speak. But should I really? I don't know. And and then by the end of the episode, you do kind of get the impression that if she had spoken, it would have been a bad thing. Yeah. Because Patty's kind of like, hey, I brought uh, Gladys here, and she didn't speak the entire time. So, yeah, it, it does kind of get at this whole idea of brainwashing and, and whether or not you can really ever trust what Patty is saying. Yeah, exactly. And that was the scene that I did like, but at the same time, I just don't... I, I wish that this show would give us a little more. I know that it gave us a little bit about not feeling, but I, I don't know. I feel like this type of event that happened at the beginning makes it... It, it just it's put everything in a direction that just made it really sour for me in a way that I really got turned off by everything. I do like all the stuff going on with Lori, and I do think Patty is very threatening, and I think Ann Dowd gives a great performance, but at the same time, it's just so... I'm now scared of this show, Andrew, because I'm, like, the fact that, like, it made me feel so miserable, and so... it, And yet it didn't really give me a lot to think about, apart from this possibility that, that they don't want to feel, which in other ways is kind of depression. That's basically what depression is. It's just all... You know, it, it, it's interesting, but at the same time, I don't think it makes a lot of sense. You know, it's hard because it's not black and white where the cult is bad and the people are good and vice versa. It's just everyone's bad, but there's nothing that makes me compelled to say, oh, I care about you. You know, it's just a bunch of people doing a bunch of terrible things. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. It does. But let's move on to some of the other characters and what happened to them this episode. Real quick. Yeah. Jill... Still not much of a character. I did like the scene, though, when her dad comes to visit and she immediately freaks out thinking that something has happened to her mom. Yeah. Just just because it's like, oh, finally, mm-hmm. you're not just angsty and obsessed with hurting yourself. You do actually love your mom. And, you know, and yeah, we saw that she gave the gift to her in last week's episode. I like that the show is at least in some way showing that Jill does have positive feelings. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, she does still love her mom. But then I thought the scene was pretty much ruined when she says, oh, I shouldn't have cried because she wouldn't have done it for me. Yeah. And I was it just like... soured it, yeah. I was just like, really? It soured really? it. Every, every <laughs> scene of the show felt like that beat. It had that beat, that extra beat that just made me go, ugh. Like, oh my god, Jesus, like, it's just so miserable, Andrew. And on top of that, I also love in that scene how Kevin Garvey, who's a cop, like, is so uh, protective about his daughter that's like, you know, I want you home, so make sure you and your friend order a pizza. Like, apparently her friend's parents don't exist. Like, she's always there. I know that's such a side note, and her character, the best friend, doesn't really matter, but, like, it just kind of pulled me out of the scene where I just love how apparently... Chief Garvey's making sure his daughter's safe, but, you know, of course the friend can stay, and whatever. Question, Charlie. Yeah. Just throwing this out there. Yeah. Are Jill and her best friend 
having some kind of lesbian relationship. I don't think so. I don't think so either, but I do think it's kind of weird that the friend is always over there. Always. And sleeping over, and she comes out in her lingerie or whatever, and it's like, okay, I know you're kind of flirting with with the the chief here, but at the same time, what's going on with you and and Jill? Why are you here all the time? Yeah. I I can't figure out what's up with this best friend character either. They seem like the gothic uh, in person. They seem like the gothic versions of um, Mina Savari and Thora Birch from American Beauty. And I know I've said that before, but that's exactly what they feel like to me. Right. Because Jill is miserable like Thora Birch was. And then her friend seems a little more upbeat, but is also incredibly promiscuous with her best friend's father i don't know it's so weird yeah i'm just waiting for the scene where uh, justin thoreau is masturbating in bed while imagining the best friend covered in rose petals <laughs> 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 then the show will go down a completely uh, different route um, and then uh, chris cooper shoots him in the end yeah i uh, can't wait for that um uh okay so let's talk about Kevin. Speaking speaking of Kevin. Yes. Uh, we need to talk about Kevin. We Andrew. do need to talk about Kevin. Uh, now, one thing we did learn early on in this episode, finally, we got confirmation. Dean is real. He is a real person who goes around shooting dogs and all, and just happens to always pop up and be shooting dogs when other major characters are experiencing something important yeah that was it's becoming unintentionally hilarious in fact like it's as a dog lover just to have a character just come out and shoot a dog in the middle of a scene is so bizarre like why nobody else seems to care about him at all even though he's shooting dogs everywhere yeah he, he just he just like pops up randomly and he gave kevin his truck and then he's he like gets mad in the at the town meeting he's like why are you giving us a curfew and it's just like what is your deal dean yeah i want now i want an episode all about dean yeah <laughs> i almost want a like a mean girls type moment where someone goes he doesn't even live here or something <laughs> like <laughs> they had that moment they had that moment yeah. where the yeah. chief was like you're not even fucking from here yeah that's actually true <laughs> what am i talking about uh but yeah kevin is boring and like really boring and yeah apparently i don't, I, I don't know if i go as far as to call him boring and i think uh, justin Thoreau is doing a pretty good job in the role I just oh i don't how, blame him no i hate how they're writing him like okay we okay so first he was missing his bagels and now he's missing his shirts and i'm just like really i get it the show is about loss and kevin has lost his wife and his family and he's trying to recover them but really is it do we really need him to be losing things every other episode yeah and trying I, to find them and basically having a temper tantrum like a five-year-old yelling out curse words like every time when he does it that whole extended scene where he knocks on the person's door just to get his stupid white shirts was so just so dumb please please, 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 please what do you want i want you to look for my shirts and i would appreciate it if you fucking tried this time yes yes of course please help me uh how many how many shirts eight eight and and uh what color all white uh, here we are all white shirts huh? that's right here we are i got them here we are yeah one second yes see white shirts here you go more white shirts White shirts. 
Eight shirts. Thank you. Uh, no, no, it's it's okay. Uh, no charge, sir. Our mistake, okay? Were they even his shirts? I don't know, and I don't care. They're white <laughs> like, shirts. I was like, okay, either these are his shirts, and the dry cleaner was keeping them for some reason. And I was like, wait, wait, wait. If so, how do you have eight shirts? Yeah, <laughs> and not realize it, or what? What? What's the deal with that? Or the dry cleaner is just giving him random shirts. Yeah. At which point wouldn't he look down and be like? These aren't my shirts. These don't. <laughs> these aren't gonna fit me. Yeah. Did he just take a stack of random shirts? I was like, I, I don't know what to think. Either Kevin just grabbed a bunch of random shirts, or the dry cleaner really was stealing shirts for some illicit black market purpose, as Nora joked. And I'm like, well, I don't get it. This is this is weird. Yeah, this is weird, but it's not interesting. And, you know, okay, so they're white shirts, like the remnant wears white, so is that supposed to be metaphorical for something? I don't know. I don't really care. Uh, <laughs> why did he even open the door, Andrew? Apparently it almost made me think that, like, he was thinking, oh, crap, uh, in this universe, Kevin Garvey's the only cop. Like, I have to let him in, because no one will help me, like, if I yeah. call the cops on him. You know, couldn't he have just done that and been like, hey, he's acting crazy? You know, it basically is him, open the door no open the fucking door no open the fucking door uh okay like he just gives <laughs> in for no reason like ah fine <laughs> like stop like uh, just stop yelling at me like it was just so uh, i don't know so awkwardly written and the, the way that a lot of these characters particularly kevin swear i rarely have this complaint because you know and a lot of people had a, this complaint with deb on dexter which I surprisingly didn't have, maybe because I just thought Jennifer Carpenter's performance was so good. But the characters swear on these, this show in a way that feels unnatural for me at times and kind of forced. And I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just me being weird about it. But do you ever get the feeling that they're just throwing in curse words just to try and make things more dramatic? It hasn't bothered me the way it has with you, but I'm not sure if that's maybe just because... A lot of the writing on the show is so awkward that it just kind of feels <laughs> in keeping with the tone of the show. Yeah. I, it hasn't really stuck out to me. But uh, getting back to everything with the shirts, the other thing with Kevin that just, I didn't see the point, was everything with the alarm. Yeah, what's <laughs> like, that about? I don't, what's, yeah, what's up with the alarm? I, it's just, oh. Yeah, that was just confusing in a way that, like... His security for his house is, like, you know, not working as well. Just, be, just like, his own mental security, or I don't know, like, what, I don't care. Like, that was basically a lot of the show was basically me saying, this is compelling, but I feel manipulated, or why should I care? Right. And always feeling miserable. And and everything with the, the federal agent who finally calls him back and is like, no, I haven't gotten any of your messages. All I could think was... Man, that agent's going to be really pissed when he finally gets that voicemail. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Kevin was just like, listen up, asshole, why'd you take the body, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know. Even that, yeah, that monologue where he just, the, the, that didn't even feel natural to me. And then I love how the only joke in this show is it cuts, it like the camera uh, focuses on Chris Eccleston, who's in the background after he hangs up the phone for the voicemail and goes, I say fuck too. Like, <laughs> best line of the episode. Yeah. <laughs> best <laughs> like, line of the episode. <laughs> it was the only part of the episode that made me laugh where it wanted to make me laugh, but I think that's the only time it was trying to be funny. So. Yeah. But yeah, everything with the, with the agent I thought was weird where he's just like, well, I've been on vacation and I haven't gotten any of your messages and 
and no, there's nothing we can do about the body, but uh, we can totally send in a team to raid <laughs> the homes of the Guilty Remnant, and we'll take care of that problem for you. Yeah, like, and, and then, yeah, that phone call was weird, and it was basically this character who we've never met before, who doesn't even exist on screen, basically giving exposition as to, like, how the rest of the town feels about the Guilty Remnant. They're dead already. We'll take care of your problem. It just didn't feel real. It felt like... Hi, I'm, you know, uh, foreshadowing what's going to happen uh, next week on the episode. Like, you know, it, it just it, felt like, well, it was such a weird conversation that I was wondering, oh, no, are you hallucinating again, Kevin? What, <laughs> what's going on? Is this another thing that might turn out not to be real? What's happening here? <laughs> are you are you imagining another agent on the line? Is this like your your subconscious coming out here? Yeah, it was it was so awkward. Maybe he stoned Gladys. And doesn't remember. No, that would suck, too. Um. That would really suck. No, you know what it is? You know what it is, Charlie? It's the deer. It's the same deer that broke into his house. <laughs> the deer is behind everything. I thought I saw that those had those uh, stoners had some... Uh, stoners make it sound like they're just in the wood smoking pot. Um, <laughs> that, would be, that would be even worse. Just a bunch of teenagers smoking pot. Hey, a lady, let's throw rocks at her. Like, that would just be... Uh, I don't know. Hey guys, you want to get stoned? No, no, not that kind of stoning. No, no. <laughs> yeah, that that's actually the, the the alternate scene that we'll get on the DVDs. Gladys sees a bunch of teenagers in the woods smoking pot and was like, "Huh, maybe I can take a puff." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh no, it's that type of stone. Oh Gladys god. Gladys gets stoned. Alternate take. <laughs> <laughs> that's so horrible. <laughs> god, but also just going back to Gladys again, it kept showing us her body in a way that made me mad. You know what I mean? It was like, even though she was dead, it just kept shoving us into the face of her rotting corpse and <laughs> everything from I'm taking her off of the tree to yes, the her shot where she just like doubles over because the guy cut her down wrong. I was like, oh, real? Whoa. Okay. Really? HBO, yeah, really HBO? <laughs> really? Like, we just watched her get stoned to death. You don't need to, like, do anything worse to her. We feel bad, okay? Like, and then, you know, I hate, I hate, I hate, and this is actually a horror movie cliche than anything, cheap flashback jump scares to something brutal, where that scene where Lori is, like, in the bathroom washing her face and you just get a flash of it. Why? Why did we need that? We know what she's thinking. We were the ones who watched this happen. We don't need to see how Lori imagines it happened. The scene at the end where she gets cremated was powerful, I guess, but at the same time, I had the same problem where I was just like, yes, we get it. She's dead. Brutally stoned to death. We get it. Like, it's just you don't need to keep shoving our face into this woman's corpse. Yeah, and then, it, the, okay, so at the very end, I was trying to figure out what is the deal with all these bodies. Yeah, are all those other people stoned to death along with her? <laughs> like, Well, okay, so you would think that the FBI was going to investigate or something, but, okay, so they're all in this warehouse, and I assume that every all the other dead people are, like, other cult members that the FBI has been investigating, and... It's like, wait, were the bodies, is this like the, uh, the 
shipping container that overturned in last week's episode with all those bodies, except instead of shipping them to their loved ones, for some reason, Gladys is just being cremated, I guess, because she has no loved ones. I, I was just, like, really confused as to what the deal was yeah. with all of those corpses. Yeah, exactly. And also speaking of the corpses from last week's episode, uh, we did not get to see what Christine and Tom were up to at all this episode, and I thought about that as soon as the credits rolled, and then I, another thing that I realized was, oh, actually, I don't care that we didn't see him this week. Like, I was about to say, Charlie, like, <laughs> did you miss them? Because I did not. <laughs> no, I didn't. And if we kept cutting back to them, then it would have, like, taken away the focus on this episode. That is one thing that you did bring up that this show episode did have, is it had a focus. I just found the focus to be kind of repugnant. Okay, okay. Oh, speaking of Tom, we didn't talk last week about how we did learn that Tom is Lori's son. Oh, yeah. Not Kevin's, mm-hmm. which I thought was interesting. Apparently, Lori's forgotten about him, though, because I don't think Lori has thought about, like, I, I, sure, it's easier because Jill's there, it's still in the neighborhood, but, you know, and the fact that Lori doesn't talk, but. Yeah, Kevin seems to care a lot more about Tom. But again, yeah. that's because he can talk, so he can pick up the phone and, and try to call him. Mm-hmm. Also, what did you think about the way that Liv Tyler's character uh, came out this episode? Because, like, it was just so... I know I should be scared, but I'm not. I'm like, I would be pooping my pants if I found one of my friends like that and heard about how she died. And I know that this is part of, like, Liv Tyler's character, but it's almost so fast that I don't buy it because technically... Episode two, she cuts down the tree, but she's still frustrated. Episode three, we don't see her. Last week, we see her, in, you know, taking pictures out of the house. This is almost a step too far for me. I don't mind it. I I like the fact that, that we can see her, you know, that she's really committing, that she's fully on board with this. And I'm wondering if by the end of the season or sometime later down the road, if she's going to become like some really super committed activist leader person. sociopath possibly yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> where and where even Lori is like oh man this has gone too far yeah i've reached my limit and Liv tyler's like no we got to keep going which is so bizarre because you think Liv tyler you think like this you know sweetheart <laughs> you know she's usually well, uh, more well known for playing very soft-spoken characters yeah, uh, is this cult also related to Wayne? We have no idea what Wayne's been up to for the past few episodes, and it just makes me think, did the rest of the world forget about that cult? Because everyone seems to be focusing on the guilty remnant now, and it's almost as if uh, the show and everyone in it forgot that Wayne's cult exists. I mean, I assume the FBI or whoever was in charge of that raid is still out there looking for him. Uh, you know, I think it's safe to assume that Wayne is just still in the trunk of that car, <laughs> driving around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't know what's going on with him. Uh, but yeah, getting back to Liv Tyler and, and Lori, what did you make of the end of this episode where Lori runs out and you almost think like, oh, she's realized that Patty is, is has kind of lied to her and she's realized that she needs to actually feel something for Gladys and she's going to go join the, uh, the Reverend, but then no, she just whistles in his face. Yeah. At the same time, I think that is a feeling because that's you're making me feel about Gladys and I don't want to. So I'm going to feel like I'm, I'm going to use this harsh form of not feeling, which actually it's it, it's see that the ideology behind the cult is so weird to me, Andrew, because couldn't you tell when she was blowing the whistle that she was feeling for Gladys? But 
like she didn't want to get them out of the way, but she's like, I have to prove my worthiness or whatever. Right. And so it's all very complicated. And I don't know if the show's trying to say that this makes sense. I don't know if the character thinks that this ideology makes sense. It, it, it was like one of the last scenes of the episode and uh, and it had the same sort of depressing but um bum kind of kick to it that every other scene in the episode had. So by the time that epi- that scene came along, I was like, I'm done for the day. I don't understand your faith, but I understand commitment. And I respect it. But we are, all of us, no matter what we've suffered, still alive. We still feel pain and sorrow. We still feel loss. We still feel love. speak her name. I know you cannot say goodbye, but I ask you at least to let me. If any of you wants to, I invite you now to come out and join us. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he... Yeah, that scene didn't work for me. That scene just kind of felt like noise. Like, okay, cue yeah. the dramatic music, cue the the loud whistling, and and the uh, the uh, emotional looks, and the priest looking confused, and it's just uh, and Anne Dowd looking conniving, and yeah, yeah I every scene had that structure to it. This episode, every single scene was like misery, 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 sense of hope, ultimately depressing kicker. Like, every single line at the end of this episode was meant to, like, punch you in the gut, which I would be fine with if I felt like this show had anything substantial to say, but I don't feel like it's saying that much right now. You know, every the, the Liv Tyler scene, she's not your wife anymore. Uh, Jill with the, she wouldn't have cried for me. The stoning scene, of course. Uh, you know what I mean, Andrew? It got to a point where it every scene became predictable and just a big downer. And I also am mad that Nora is only showing up for, like, a scene every episode, almost to say, hey, I'm still here. And then they do nothing with her, because she's, you know, got some of the best scenes of these episodes in some pretty mediocre episodes, not uh, regardless, so... Well, I think this is why the Reverend, uh, Matt Jameson, I, that's, this is why I think he's ultimately the most interesting character, because yes, he goes through a hard time, and yes, he's had some serious obstacles to deal with, but he perseveres, and he still has hope. And even now, after he's lost his church, we see that he still wants to pray over the body, he's still going to try to uh, help them have some sort of memorial for for Gladys. He's sticking to his convictions and he's sticking ultimately to optimism and the idea that yes, things are bad 
and these people who were taken were bad people, but we can find meaning, we can find answers, and and things can get better. I, I think that's why a lot of people respond to his character, because mm-hmm. he he does seem more complex in the sense that he's not just misery, misery, misery. He he, there is a a, a great deal of hope in there as well. No, I agree with you. I like his character a lot too. Too bad we don't get enough of him and. As we just said, the scene where Laurie blows the whistle in his face just kind of went on for too long and didn't really work for me. Uh, And as you said, it was just a bunch of noise. What do you think about the curfew? Because can they do that? And I mean, I guess that they can, but like, does that ever happen anymore in suburban towns or cities or anything? Like just a curfew for a murder? Because, you know, I have no idea. I, I, I suppose in like really, really small towns, it could happen. I didn't really think about it. I, I guess it made sense that, okay, yeah, I guess they could try to implement a curfew while they uh, investigate what happened. But, yeah, they, they didn't really do anything with that. With that. No, because yeah. everyone's out anyway. So it was like <laughs> like next week's episode of The Leftovers is everyone staying in and playing Yahtzee. Like, it's just the most boring. Like, <laughs> <laughs> just watching reruns of, like, that 70s show. Yep. And <laughs> uh, it's, it's Dean looking really depressed because he's not allowed to go outside and shoot his dogs. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just you just see him looking outside and he's like, so many dogs to shoot. Like, yeah. But that's the thing. There's, there is no curfew. The council voted not to have a curfew, so it was kind of like, well that was pointless <laughs> yeah and like and the and like the mayor even goes as far as to say like i'm with chief garvey on this and then nobody on the council supports her i was like okay what is the point of this you brought up the idea of the curfew but it's not going to be implemented so either that's going to have negative effects on someone down the line or the mayor is going to like be in, get impeached or something because the town clearly doesn't support her or something. Yeah. What, what, where can this go, Charlie? What is, what's the end game here? I don't know what the mayor, the mayor's not a character. She's just, she's a fast, got f- fascinating potential, but she's like conveying half-hearted ideas or statements or whatever. And then just kind of showing up and being like, I'm important but not really. And like, (laughs) and like, I I half expected her to, when she heard about the stoning, like, you know, or I half expected anybody to be like, Oh, what happened last night? Oh, someone was stoned to death and have them be like, Oh no, not one of those. Like, I just needed like something that was just like, it it almost seemed like almost too casual and yet far too strict. I don't know what it was. Like not a lot of people, not a lot of people get stoned to death, Andrew. I don't know where I mean, at least I, not in this country. Not not where I live. Uh so like but they they were very strict about the curfew, but like that's a biblical way to die and it just made me think like it made me feel like they were almost in a law and order SVU type of world or they were just like, "Ugh, hate when this happens." You know, like <laughs> that's pretty shocking. I don't know. When is the last time you've read about someone getting stoned to death in, you know, a non-religious ritual in some part of the world? I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, well, I don't really have anything else to say about this episode. Uh, we can move on to some feedback, if that's okay with you. Okay, yeah. All right. Well, uh, we got a, we got a comment on the website, from com on episode three, which, which was about uh, the third episode of The Leftovers, the one all about the priest. Uh, and E-Logic gave us a comment and said, uh, Agree, guys. That was a great episode of television. So it seems like... A lot of people agree that the third episode so far has been the best episode. Well, uh, yeah, I was 
just thinking about that episode after I watched this one, and I was like, God, that episode was so good. I wish that they could go back to that sort of gray morality and that, you know, it was actually about something. I mean, sure, it's just a character piece and it didn't have as much to do with, you know, everyone disappearing as everyone else. It was much more about Christopher Eccleston's character, but the drama in that didn't feel manipulative. It felt genuine and it didn't feel so, I don't know, nasty or mean-spirited compared to, like, what's been going on recently. Well, I gotta tell you, I was kind of excited when this episode started because I thought, oh man, this is going to be an episode all about Gladys. And I was like, whoa, it's going to be like the episode with the priest where it takes this character that we've only seen pop up in a few moments and now it's going to have a whole episode about them. I was really excited. And then she died and I was like, oh, I guess not. I guess we're not going to have a Gladys episode. Yeah. Yeah. Not to mention like, okay, one other thing. Do you think that that death scene needed to be that long? Oh, I think so. You don't think that we could have had, like, one rock or, you know, like, it cut away and cuts to black and you hear sound effects or something? Do you really think that it needed to shove our face into it like that? I think it I think it was effective. I think it was appropriate, especially because, again, the the cult, again, here we go calling it a cult, the activist group, I guess I yes. should say. I, should I call keep it. calling it cult, too, so yeah. sorry. So they, uh, again, the, the last time we saw them, they were stealing everybody's photographs. So I think you needed something really harsh to show the, the the extreme response to that and the effect that that had on people. So I was okay with it being a little bit long and, and being pretty graphic. I think that was necessary for the scene. Okay, maybe they'll do something with the death of Gladys later on that'll justify it. I don't know. Um, and, you know, I'm not a squeamish person, Andrew. I mean, I've watched plenty of gory horror movies and, you know, i watched Hannibal without looking away, but Hannibal takes place in an over-the-top universe that's very, uh, it, it has a very over-the-top TV feel where this feels very gritty and trying to be, like, you know, very realistic to the point where, like, there wasn't anything stylized about that that stoning. It was just so brutal and realistic. Yeah, I agree with you. Hannibal has this definite stylistic over-the-top side to it. Uh, which is part of what I think makes the show so compelling. Uh, this was definitely a lot grittier and, and disturbing in that sense, I think. Uh, let's move on. We got a, another voicemail from our friend Tony. She left us a voicemail. She said she didn't want us to play her voicemail on the air. I think okay. she, she felt like her voicemail didn't turn out great. Tony, we can edit your voicemail to make you sound a lot better. It's no problem. Yeah. <laughs> you think we speak perfectly? Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you only knew how much time I spent trying to make us sound reasonably coherent, you know. Yeah. Uh, but, so Tony left us a voicemail, and she, she brought up some interesting points about, again, about episode three. She thought that the person who had left the money for Matt was Kevin's dad. That oh. he had investigated the judge and discovered everything with the bribes and he had somehow gotten his hand on the money and left it for the priest. I didn't really get that. I mean, yes, the note was signed KG, but we don't know which Kevin Garvey it is. Yeah. I don't know if it's Kevin Garvey senior or Kevin Garvey junior. I have read some interesting theories online that suggested, okay, well maybe the judge was the person driving the car on the day of the departure that ultimately crashed into the reverend's car and paralyzed his wife. 
Oh. That maybe the judge vanished and paralyzed his wife, and that's why Matt became so obsessed with uh, getting the dirt on the judge. And maybe then uh, after the money was uh, confiscated by the police, maybe one of the Kevin Garveys decided, okay, well, I'll set some of this money aside for uh, for for uh, Matt when he needs it just because he's been through a lot with everything with his wife. I thought that was an interesting theory. Definitely. No, def- Tony, you're definitely on to something. Uh, I hope that these uh, little details don't get lost in the shuffle because it looks like we're not going to get a lot of character pieces, character study episodes for a little while at least. I mean, I'd be... You know, I guess it's always a possibility, but I don't know. Do you think we'll get another one this season, Andrew? Or do you think that that's kind of our one-hit wonder? I have heard that next week's episode might be more character-centric. That's all I yeah. will say. Okay, because so we don't, will see. Because don't you think that by the when you know it's interesting to see what all these characters are doing? I guess, but I, I feel like the drama and the writing gets so forced because they feel as if they're they need to be they need to compress a bunch of things into this ensemble hour of television that when, you know, when it focused on uh, the priest in the third episode, everything played out more naturally and felt more relaxed. And I, I don't know, because I feel like that might be another reason why some of the writing is so awkward and some if it feels so expository. Maybe so. But uh, I have a feeling if this is anything like Lost in terms of its structure, yes, we got a few details about uh, Matt and the money uh, in episode three. It's the kind of thing that the writers might return to, say, in season two. Like, okay, now we're going to have a little an, another episode with Matt and we're going to reveal a little bit more about what happened with the money and the judge and, and the bribes and what we're going to kind of finally, we're going to reveal more details about what specifically went down. So I, I have a feeling that's a mystery that will probably be solved later on. Also, do you think that this show will get renewed for season two because people are writing all about why it hasn't, uh, why they think it hasn't gotten reviewed, renewed yet? And if it doesn't get renewed for season two, do you think season one will be able to stand on its own? I really don't know. And the thing is, the thing is with HBO, you can never really tell when they're going to renew something or not, you know, because they, they have such different metrics for what constitutes a success. Yeah, I'm pretty you sure know. Game of Thrones got renewed for a second season after the pilot like broke records or something. So. Well, sure. And it's the same with True Detective. If your show breaks HBO viewing records, yes, they're going to renew you. But at the same time, HBO, again, there there's a premium subscriber-based service. So a show can not have millions of viewers and still do well enough for the company that Mm -hmm. it's worth renewing. That's why you see a lot of shows on HBO that might not have a lot of viewers, but they're critically acclaimed or they have a devoted core audience, so they'll get renewed for another season or two. And, I mean, think about Girls. Girls doesn't really have a huge audience, but a ton of people write about it and talk about it. And it's part of the cultural conversation. So it might not be doing super well in terms of the demographics or getting an audience, but... It has devoted following. Yeah. It's it's just one of those shows, too, where I was thinking about it, Andrew, because, you know, I like I like very, you know, emotionally uh, challenging, you know, shows. I mean, In Treatment's one of my favorite shows, but I always wanted to come back to In Treatment, even if it was a, ther- you know, a brutal episode of therapy and emotional trauma and stuff like that. And here I'm coming back to The Leftovers every week, kind of like, 
well, I guess I should watch it and not really excited or looking forward to the episode itself because it makes me feel so terrible. Yeah, I'm, you know, unless the show drastically improves in quality, I'm not sure it's going to attract more of an audience, you know, and it's, it's not a terrible show. It's just, no. not, it's not a great one. No. And, it, you know, like I said, like I, my main complaint is been for this episode and mainly for the show in general, if you're going to give us something brutal and bleak, have it be justified and kind of let your audience know what they're, you know, didn't you feel like you were being punished for something you didn't understand what you were being punished for? I didn't. I, I didn't feel like I was being punished. I just felt like, oh, look, more characters being punished because that's what happens on this show. Yeah, it just, it was so, it, this episode was misery porn to the, as, an extent that the other episodes, as bleak as they were, didn't touch upon. Which isn't bad, you know, it that is a, a, something that is successful on the part of the show for making me feel that way, because it obviously wants to, but it's not a good feeling, and it's not something that I like to feel unless I know why I'm feeling it. Well, Tony also brought up uh, a few other things regarding episode three. She she did uh, point out that, yes, Lori was stalking her now ex-husband, Kevin, which is why she was sitting behind the house uh, when Matt came by. And, you know, he kind of said, hey, if you don't tell anybody that I'm taking this money, I won't tell anybody that you're stalking <laughs> your husband. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I thought, so I think that's interesting that there was at least a time when she was continuing to visit her house at night and, and seemed unwilling to kind of let go of her previous life. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, um, Tony pointed out in her voicemail that the painting Matt is looking at throughout the episode is a painting of Job. And I think that I had remember reading that somewhere online as well that it's a painting of, of job and uh which if you've read the bible job was this guy fully committed to god and god made a bet with the devil where basically satan came along and said hey god uh job is super this super righteous dude but i'll just make him suffer and if, if you let me i will torment him and torment him and eventually he will renounce you and God said, cool, go do your worst. So all these terrible things happened to Job, and Job stayed faithful through it all. And what's interesting is that uh, basically, if I'm recalling this correctly, at the end of the book of Job, after he's been th through so much suffering and like lost his family and been super sick and nearly died, he finally is just like, why is this happening? Why am I suffering? God, this makes no sense. And God basically shows up and talks to him and is like, well, Job, I'm God and I can do what I want. <laughs> so deal with it. <laughs> and, I yeah. and I'm wondering if, if that's the ultimate philosophy that The Leftovers is going to take. Because you, you say it's a super bleak show, Charlie. Like, there's so much suffering. What if the ultimate answer is just... Well, this is what happens. Tough shit. Yeah. yeah. Basically, I'm God and this is life and I can do what I want. <laughs> but, you know, that's not that's not anything that I can get with. Yeah, I, can, I can learn that through day to day life without watching a, the television show, you know, like so much more bleak than something like, you know, a movie like The Tree of Life, uh, which is one of my favorite films of the past few years, uh, deals with acceptance of the loss of a loved one. And, you know, why did God take my child away and uh, getting no easy answers, but offering a sense of hope and acceptance despite horrible tragedy to just have a bunch of horrible stuff on TV. 
TV happen and then just have the theme be, yeah, well, tough shit. Uh, bad things happen. Yeah, I can watch the news and figure that out. Yeah, I agree with you. I'm, I'm not a big fan of misery porn. And The Leftovers is towing that line. You know, it's been five episodes, and I, apart from episode three, I've just felt worse and worse after every single episode. And it, yeah, it, it, sure, it does have to do with the fact that it starts with a gruesome murder, but that's what ties everything in this episode together. So not like I dislike movies about miserable people. Uh, you know, uh, a lot. one of the directors who is accused of making misery porn over and over again is uh, Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu, who did Amores Paris and 21 Grams and Babel, and while I think Babel's a little flawed, uh, 21 Grams and Amores Peros, as miserable as they are, do shove you in the face of misery, but have a lot of important themes on life and love and family and the importance of moving on. Here, I just, I don't know what, you know, to just say, oh, isn't that interesting that they prefer to feel nothing? Well, yeah, but at the same time, that's kind of just depression and that's not as interesting to me because I feel like you know a lot of people are probably feeling nothing and prefer to do it that like I, I don't know what is this trying to say Andrew if I'm gonna be this miserable I need to have a reason why if I'm giving stuff to think about that's fine too but the show is trying to you know as we said before all the stuff with Chief Garvey and the missing shirts and is he crazy that's not stuff that is related to the murder but it's not interesting either. So, like, that's not, that's the least exploitative part of this episode, but at the same time, it's so not interesting to me. That is a fair criticism. That is a, a totally a, a, an adequate criticism there, Charlie. So, I'm getting the impression that we're halfway through season one, and you're really not looking forward to the second half. I'm really not. And, you know, if you told me, if you asked me that two weeks ago with episode three, I would have been on board. But, you know, I just, I feel like this podcast has been us just asking, what is this show trying to say over and over and over again? And that's just getting frustrating because a lot of the drama that is giving us answers isn't interesting or is clunkily written or whatever. Right. The thing is, Charlie, in my experience, sometimes a mediocre show is worse than a really, really bad show. Yeah. Because even if the show is just terrible, like that final season of Dexter got to be, Ugh. you can have fun just bashing it, and the, there's kind of a this fun hate-watching mentality mm-hmm. that you can kind of develop. Like, man, this show's going to suck. I can't wait to see how much it sucks. Definitely. But this show is, is again, it's not terrible, but it's also not great it's just kind of in the middle and you're like well it's doing some things well and then other things i'm like what is the point and why does it matter and that to me i think is more frustrating yeah if you watch it you know if you're someone who hates two and a half men and you watch two and a half men you know it's gonna suck maybe it's not fair for me to compare a sitcom to a serialized drama but you know what you're getting out of two and a half men every single time you watch it and even if it sucks it sucks in the exact way that you think it's gonna suck in and the leftovers it's just such a wild card that because it's shown potential in the past you're hoping that it can bring some of that uh, greatness that it's touched upon back, and when it doesn't, it makes it twice as disappointing. Yeah, that's the tough thing, is that you know a show has potential, and you're just mm-hmm. like, come on, writers, just yeah. just tap into that potential, just come on, there's so much you can work with here, why aren't you doing it? Yeah, I haven't been this frustrated with the first season of a show since I watched uh, the first season of The Killing on AMC, where it started oh, off yeah. so great and then just became the worst thing in the world. Like, it was the best example of how to do a television, uh, a serialized detective drama, and then by the end of that season, it was basically a parody of itself, it was just 
and that is what I'm feeling here. Yeah. It's it, it's weird because I've been, I've been trying to keep up with a few of the new shows of the of the other new shows that are premiered this summer, Charlie. I don't know if you're watching The Strain. I am, although I didn't see last night's episode, but yeah. So, the thing about The Strain is a lot of critics have bashed The Strain. I am kind of enjoying The Strain because it is just so goofy and over the top and pulpy and I'm kind of of into it. And the thing is, Charlie, again, you can be a a bad show, but as long as you're kind of fun. Oh, yeah. In in a trashy way, like some of the best seasons of True Blood have been in the past. Like it's not it's it's just pulpy, trashy entertainment. That can be great. Yeah. But if you're bad and you're depressing and you're not you're not fun yeah that that's a real problem exactly and i feel the exact same way about the strain i do have a lot of problems with the strain but it's problems that revolve around like the strain has probably the most cliched boring uh protagonist i've seen in any show in years i don't care about you know his wife problems with his wife and how she's seeing someone else and how he's estranged from his son but when it's good and when it, it it doesn't take itself nearly as seriously as the leftovers. And when it's good, it's campy, pulpy, well produced fun with you know vampire worms and you know like all sorts of goofy dialogue that's fun to like laugh at. You're just waiting to see how crazy the show can go because the show's basically say, telling you we're not really trying to be about anything. We're just trying to be you know exquisitely produced trash whereas the leftovers seems to think it's trying to it's really saying something yeah and the, actually the, the best example i can think of of a fairly new show that's still on the air that it, that i would qualify as well produced fun trash sleepy hollow oh i need to watch that so much fun so goofy and just not great television but but just in terms of pulpy b movie style over-the-top ridiculousness it's pretty pretty spectacular yeah that's what i've heard i guess what i guess what i'm trying to say is charlie the leftovers needs a headless horseman to show up with a shotgun that's really (laughs) what it's missing does he really have a shotgun on that show he doesn't have an axe or anything (laughs) no he has an axe too but there yeah i think in the pilot he like rides in on a horse and has like a machine gun or a shotgun or something It's, it's crazy that is awesome. I definitely need to check that out. And also, like, if you are going to be a good mystery show that is going to show a lot of misery, like, I, you know, I'm watching, I just started The the Returns. I started watching that on Netflix, and that's a big mystery about why are these dead people coming back to life? But it's actually about, it, it explores some things that The Leftovers is trying to touch upon about loss and coping, and how can you cope with something you don't understand? And in the case of The Leftovers, I mean, in, in the case of uh, The Returned, how can you uh, cope with something, continue coping for something when that, the thing you are coping about comes back into your life and be careful what you wish for because it can honestly screw you up even more. But that has a lot to say about mourning, whereas The Leftovers is basically just throwing a lot of balls into the air and not really talking about mourning at all. It's all about how they're reacting to each other and how they're nihilistically destroying each other and don't you feel like this is it's kind of got a nasty streak to it that i don't like at all in some ways too i don't know if i'd go that far but i can i can sort of see where you're coming from i mean the first line spoken in this episode andrew was fuck you you fucking cunts where i was just like oh (laughs) welcome to the leftovers like (laughs) like 
we're gonna be that we're gonna go that way and we're gonna make you feel horrible doing it like <laughs> <laughs> okay well i don't have anything else to say about this episode do you charlie no i feel like we've been comparing it to a lot of shows re- i feel like yeah I, it, the one thing i will say is the leftovers if you're gonna be this miserable please give me something to chew on or give me a little food for thought anything except and if you're gonna kill a character off don't make it a plot device maybe develop your characters before you set another tragedy in motion so we actually care yeah i agree all right well uh, thanks for your voicemail tony we really appreciate it uh next time hopefully you'll let us play your voicemail on the air uh we we really love hearing from our listeners that'll wrap it up for this episode of the tupperware party write in and let us know what you thought of this episode you can email us at leftovers at filmgeekvideo.com or comment on the website at filmgeekvideo.com you can also call and leave us a voicemail through the website or by dialing 336-793-2509. Be sure to subscribe to us through iTunes and Stitcher. And if you like the Tupperware Party, please write us a review. That really helps us out a lot in terms of getting the word out about the program. And if you really like the show and you'd like to financially support us, you can donate to us by going to filmgeekradio.com and clicking on the support tab and the donate button. That money really helps us out and goes towards helping us pay for hosting and bandwidth and covering all the other costs that come with producing the show. You can also use our affiliates page to visit some of our partners, including Amazon. And Anything you purchase from our affiliates, uh, if you use our website as the portal to get there, we will get a small percentage of whatever you spend. So you can buy something for yourself and help us out at the same time. And as always, be sure to check out other great shows on Film Geek Radio, including Cinema Fix, Charlie, where can people find you online? You can find the work that I've written for Edge Media on edgeonthenet.com, as well as the work that I've written for Movie Mezzanine on moviemezzanine.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ctnash91. That's C-T-N-A-S-H 91. You can find my film and TV criticism at moviemezzanine.com, and you can also find me co-hosting a few other podcasts on Film Geek Radio. And you can follow me on Twitter and Letterboxd at WriterAndrew. And I hope that you'll do so so we can keep talking about The Leftovers. All right, that'll wrap it up for this episode. We'll see you next week at the Tupperware Party. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!